0: Welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed
1: in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care.
0: Hello, this is Panos Vardas. I'm an integrated cardiothoracic surgery resident at Indiana University and I'm interviewing Dr. Ken Kessler is B. Schumacher, Professor of Surgery, and Division Chief of Thoracic Surgery at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Today, we will be discussing the presentation, workup and treatment of various anterior medicinal tumors. This is obviously a wide-ranging topic, so given the time constraints, I would like to discuss three representative but challenging clinical scenarios. Dr. Kessler, thank you for joining us at the TSRA series of podcasts. Let's start with our case presentation. We have a 25-year-old male who was referred with chest discomfort, soreness of breath for three months, and after visiting his primary care physician, ultimately a CT chest was obtained and revealed an anterior mediastinal mass measuring 12 by 10
1: centimeters. What are your initial thoughts upon hearing this uh, history? Thanks, uh, Panos. We always begin with the basic differential diagnosis of anterior mediastinal masses, the four Ts, which is a great mnemonic. But a bit of an oversimplification with each of the four Ts really representing categories under which there are several distinct pathologies for example under the category of thymoma most commonly you have thymoma but also thymic carcinoma carcinoid thymolipoma and other mesenchymal tumors Under the category of teratoma, there are three distinct pathologies, including benign teratoma, which is most common, but also malignant seminoma and malignant non-seminoma. When evaluating anterior mediastinal masses, the first thing we teach our residents is to try to narrow down the differential, which can initially be done in many cases simply with uh, patient demographics. For example, in this case, in an otherwise young, healthy male, lymphoma, thymoma and germ cell tumors are all in the differential. Substernal goiter is usually obvious on CT and would be very rare in this young patient. Ectopic thyroid or parathyroid would also be unlikely and highly unlikely to be this large causing these types of symptoms. So you're really left with three categories in this case in order of frequency. Number one, lymphoma, particularly Hodgkin subtype. Secondly, thymoma and third likely is a germ cell tumor. So at this point, how will you proceed with the evaluation? So uh, Panos, you want to focus your history and physical on these three diagnoses. For thymoma, focus on perineoplastic disorders such as myasthenia with questions regarding muscular weakness, ptosis, diplopia, and so forth. For lymphoma, history should obviously include asking about fevers, night sweats, and weight loss. On physical exam, cervical palpation is important to identify any prominent lymph node which may be amenable uh, to excision for diagnostic purposes. Observe for distended neck veins, a prominent upper chest venous pattern suggestive of a great vein involvement. Diminished breath sounds and auscultation could be due to pleural effusions or atelectasis. What about CT imaging? Well, CT findings can further help narrow down the differential and even establish a diagnosis in some cases. Mass appearance, relationships to neighboring structures, evidence of metastasis all can help. For example, a CT demonstrating a cystic mass with fluid, fat, and calcifications is virtually diagnostic of a benign teratoma. Serum tumor markers, alpha-fetoprotein, and beta-HCG should be measured but are typically normal in these situations, and the patient should proceed directly to curative surgery. There's no need to biopsy. Bulky homogeneous masses are found in patients with lymphoma and malignant seminoma, which are primarily treated non-surgically, but are also found in thymoma, which, as you know, is optimally treated surgically, so it's important to differentiate between these tumors. In lymphoma cases, there's frequently evidence of cervical or mediastinal lymphadenopathy. Lymphadenopathy can also be present with a thymoma, but this is more unusual. For primary malignant non-seminomas, these typically have a very heterogeneous appearance consistent with their frequently mixed pathology of a malignant germ cell component, yolk sac, embryonal or choriocarcinoma mixed with teratoma and occasionally malignant transformation of teratoma into non-germ cell cancers. Metastasis are present in about 20 to 30% of these malignant germ cell tumors, most commonly to the lung or liver, which can also be seen on CT. In an otherwise healthy young adult male, ages ranging, say, from 15 to 45, an important part of the evaluation is to draw serum tumor markers. any elevation of AFP or significant elevation of beta HCG is virtually diagnostic of a malignant non-seminoma which should be treated with four cycles of platinum-based chemotherapy specifically VIP followed by surgery to remove residual disease in these cases with elevated serum tumor markers we do tend to confirm the diagnosis with a quick CT guided FNA but if CT-guided FNA is not possible due to tumor location, for example, we would not delay chemotherapy for a surgical biopsy and just proceed with chemotherapy based on serum marker elevation alone. Note that some malignant seminomas will have mild elevations of beta-HCG, but no pure seminoma will have any AFP elevation. Okay, so Dr. Kessler, is there any role for PET scanning? Well, for a a suspected lymphoma, PET can be very helpful for staging purposes and occasionally identify a cervical lymph node, which can be easily biopsied to establish a diagnosis. For the mediastinal non-seminomas, pre- and uh, post-chemotherapy PET can be helpful only if there's evidence of metastatic disease. In the usual situation, however, where there is no evidence of metastatic disease, Post-chemotherapy PET cannot differentiate between tumor fibrosis and teratoma, nor will identify focal areas of persistent germ cell cancer or focal areas of non-germ cell cancer, all of which need surgical removal, so PET is usually not helpful. I see. Is there any further workup you would like? If the uh, serum tumor markers are normal and CT findings are not consistent with a benign teratoma, then CT-guided FNA can diagnose a malignant seminoma, and FNA cytology is getting better to differentiate between thymoma and lymphoma, but a CT-guided core biopsy is probably still preferable in in these cases. If the diagnosis remains elusive or the tumor can't be accessed via CT guidance for a core biopsy, then surgical biopsy options include chamber procedure or VATS based on tumor location or even mediastinoscopy if there are suspicious lymph nodes in the paratracheal space. So,
0: Dr. Kessler, let's say that this patient has elevated alpha phytoprotein, and FNA confirms a yolk sac tumor. He received four cycles of VIP chemotherapy and has responded well, both by normalization of serotumor tumor markers and reduction, but no resolution of the anterior mediastinal mass. How will you proceed at this point, and will you describe how you perform your resection?
1: Yeah, post chemotherapy surgery for mediastinal non seminomas can uh, can be very challenging. Panos, is the chemo. Usually creates a fibrotic interface between the residual mass and adjacent organs, obscuring the normal anatomic planes. But this fibrosis usually allows complete resection, which minimizes morbidity by preserving critical structures which abut but are not directly involved with the residual mass, such as great veins and phrenic nerves, using uh, frozen section control first most important decision is a surgical approach. We carefully review the post-treatment CT scan to determine what surrounding organs, critical structures, will be encountered during dissection. In general, for fairly localized anterior masses, a standard sternotomy is used. For larger masses with extension into either pleural space or pulmonary hilum, a clamshell approach is usually chosen. And uh, finally, for the more lateralized anterior mediastinal mass, we would use an anterior lateral thoracotomy.
0: So let's say you encounter a mass which invades the right upper lobe and the central venous structures or even is abutting the aorta.
1: How would you approach this? We usually take the dissection from easiest to hardest, which equates going from superficial to deep. If the right upper lobe only has a small amount of invasion, we would do an on block wedge excision using staplers designed for thoracoscopic surgery. However, if there's significant lobar involvement or invasion into the right upper lobe hilum, then obviously on block lobectomy will be required. The pericardium is directly involved with the majority of these cases, an on block pericardectomy. Leaving a one to two centimeter rim of normal pericardium attached to the residual mass is usually fairly easy with no downside and helps mobilize the residual mass for further dissection. At the end of the procedure, we reconstruct most pericardial defects, usually with thin-walled PTFE patch, unless the defect is, say, less than 2 to 3 centimeters or high over the great, um, great vessels. The aorta and great arteries usually can be spared by peeling the mass off these vessels, again with frozen section control. Rarely will aortic or great artery resection reconstruction be needed, but the availability of cardiopulmonary bypass really never hurts in these cases. Finally, SVC resection reconstruction is usually reserved as a last step to minimize clamp time. 20 to 30 minutes of SVC clamp time is generally well tolerated, but longer times can cause neurologic uh, complications. We give uh, 100 units of heparin per kilogram prior to clamping and that's not reversed after uh, uh, clamp removal. In the unusual situation that less than half of the SVC wall circumference is resected, then we simply patch this defect, usually with a piece of autologous pericardium. For the more common situation where complete SVC resection is needed, then there are several options for reconstruction, including autologous spiral saphenous vein, autologous femoral vein, a tube created a bovine pericardium, externally stented PTFE, or our preference for the last three years has been cryopreserved human aortic allografts. If an isolated anominate vein is removed, we usually do not reconstruct as there is typically only temporary and mild arm swelling. But if the anominate confluence is involved, we just reconstruct one anominate vein, Preferably the right to the SVC as a straight, short downward graft, as opposed to the left denominate vein, which takes a longer curve route, therefore, may be likely to, uh, to thrombose. What about a tumor that involves the phrenic nerve? Well, in our experience, about a third of our mediastinal non seminoma cases require phrenic nerve resection because of frank involvement. And if we have not done a formal pulmonary resection, such as a lobectomy, pneumonectomy, then we tend to do a prophylactic diaphragm plication at the time of surgery. So, Panos, although the residual mass usually at least abuts one of the phrenic nerves, in about two thirds of these cases, the phrenic nerve can be spared with judicious blunt or scalpel dissection, again with frozen section control. Dr. Kessler, what?
0: What is the prognosis for these patients?
1: The the overall cure rates for mediastinal non-seminoma is 50%. The prognosis, however, is extremely variable and based on the worst pathology contained in the residual mass. Patients pathologically demonstrating complete tumor necrosis have an excellent 80 to 90 percent long term survival. However, unfortunately, this is only 25 percent of cases. The cure rates for patients pathologically demonstrating teratoma is intermediate, with approximately 60 percent long term survival. And patients demonstrating frank malignancy in the form of either persistent germ cell tumor or malignant transformation into non germ cell cancers have low but possible survival, somewhere between 20 and 30 percent. Great. Let's uh, conclude this scenario with one last question.
0: If the serum tumor markers don't return to normal levels or even raise after four cycles of chemotherapy, will you still offer an
1: operation? Well, this is a a very difficult and perhaps even controversial situation we uh, encounter from time to time. The first thing we do is obtain a CNS MRI to rule out a sanctuary metastasis which if present can frequently be successfully treated with radiation and or surgery, and does not impact our plans to remove the residual mediastinal mass. If the residual mass is otherwise deemed resectable, we would remove the mass and accept a low but possible cure rate if there's pathologic evidence of persistent germ cell cancer, as would be expected in this scenario. As an alternative, consideration could be given to high-dose chemotherapy with stem cell transplant, However, high dose chemotherapy alone, as salvage therapy, only has a 10% response rate in these tumors. Great. Now let's pass to
0: a different scenario. You have a 38 year old woman who presented to her primary care physician with complaints of generalized weakness, blurred vision, and vague chest discomfort. She eventually had a chest CT which identified a 1.5 by 2 centimeters, centimeters anterior mediastinal mass what is in your differential
1: now? Panos, if the diagnosis of myasthenia can be established then this mass should as- be assumed to represent a thymoma until proven otherwise and we can pretty much dispense with going through the 14 mnemonic. We would send this patient to our neurology experts to confirm the diagnosis of myasthenia, begin medical management and help optimize symptoms preoperatively. Keep in mind that although myasthenia is the most common Autoimmune disease associated with thymoma. There have been many other associations, including, for example, lupus, thyroiditis, red and white cell aplasias, a combination of hypogamma globulinemia, and repeated pulmonary infections of the so called Good syndrome. Would you consider a CD guided biopsy for this patient? Yeah, this is a fairly small mass and uh, that would make biopsy difficult and additionally present the potential anyway for pleural seeding. As most of the thoracic surgery community knows, a recently published randomized study demonstrated a significant benefit for myasthenia patients who underwent complete transternal thymectomy as compared to patients receiving medical management. So, assuming the patient is an acceptable risk, we would proceed directly to surgery for total thymectomy, removing the mass, all the surrounding thymic tissue, including the cervical horns, body body of the thymus, and pericardial fat for both diagnostic and therapeutic purposes. Some surgeons would consider using robotic and VATS approach for this individual, and if so, we need to keep in mind that completeness of thymectomy has been shown to be critical to improve symptoms of myasthenia. We also need to keep in mind that these tumors have a potential for pleural seeding, so removal must be done very carefully. Dr. Kessler, let's
0: modify the scenario a little. We have a 65-year-old female with a 10 by 8 centimeter suspected thymoma, which appears invading the left inanimate pain. What is the algorithm of management at this point?
1: Yeah, panosis probably represents a large invasive stage three thymoma. We would first arrange CT-guided biopsy, and if thymoma is confirmed, then there are two options, including direct surgical removal, if deemed possible, or neoadjuvant therapy followed by surgery. In most of these cases, we would tend to favor a neoadjuvant approach, beginning with two cycles of platinum-based chemotherapy, repeat the CT scan to assess response. If there's been a good response, we would give an additional two to four cycles. Some centers would also include a modest dose of radiation. From a surgical standpoint, we pretty much use all the approaches and techniques we have just discussed to remove mediastinal germ cell tumors as we do for most invasive anterior mediastinal neoplasm. So, so again, we would just resect an isolated anominate vein on block without reconstruction. When dealing with phrenic nerves, We should, however, keep in mind that in contrast to germ cell tumors, which in general are not responsive to radiation, that most thymomas are sensitive to radiation. So for example, in the unusual case that a thymoma involves both phrenic nerves, we might resect the nerve with the greatest amount of involvement, and again, consider prophylactic diaphragm plication, and spare the phrenic with less involvement. However, marking this area with surgical clips for targeting a post-operative radiation. How about if there is a small pleural lesion present on the CT? We would suspect this represents a so-called droplet metastasis and a range CT-guided biopsy of the pleural lesion to establish both a diagnosis and a stage of a likely 4a thymoma. Treatment is a bit controversial for stage 4a thymoma with options of chemotherapy alone chemotherapy followed by surgery or surgery alone without great evidence-based recommendations. We need to keep in mind that some of these thymomas, although metastatic, can behave in a very indolent manner and or are very responsive to chemotherapy, particularly for older patients or patients with comorbidities. Having said that, for a good risk patient, we would probably treat this patient similarly to an invasive stage 3 thymoma we just discussed with neoadjuvant chemotherapy that consider surgery in the form of mediastinal dissection and pleurectomy. Not infrequently, however, more pleural disease is identified during exploration than an isolated area seen on CT, so this must be kept in mind during resection. For very good risk patients with extensive pleural disease and a large mediastinal mass We've been performing on-block mediastinal dissection, extrapleural pneumonectomy, Through initial sternotomy to mobilize the mass, begin the extrapleural dissection, close the sternotomy, place the patient in the lateral decubitus position for posterior lateral thoracotomy to complete the dissection. Great. Dr. Kessler, thank you very much for your time and for sharing with us
0: your expertise.